Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and this is our Sunday edition of, of well, <laughs> Just Ask the Press. And with us today, as last week, is John Bennett from CQ Roll Call and one of our favorite former prosecutors on the planet, Michael Zeldin. So uh, we're going to start out this week. Uh, thanks, guys, for joining me. And we're going to start out this week, I guess, getting right to it, talking a little bit about the surprise announcement this morning uh, that Steve Bannon says he'll be happy to testify before the uh, January 6th committee. And there are plenty of people who think that's a bit of a trap, that he'll come on and defend Trump. But, Michael, I'll defer to you on this one. They don't have to take him live, right? They could record him and and play the best of tape in in the hearing, yes? They are not going to take him live. If they take him, it'll be under their terms, and their terms are that they depose their witnesses. They can last hours and hours, as we saw with Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel who testified the other day for seven and a half hours, and that has been their standard for everybody, including Cassidy Hutchinson, who testified live but after having testified previously in um, private sessions. So that's the way they'll hear from Bannon, and then they'll make a decision whether they want to use that testimony taken in private in a public setting. Do you think that he would offer anything that people would want to, I guess he would, would want to listen to? Well, you know, depends on who the person is, but I suppose the, the question with Bannon is, has he, you know, sort of found faith and is going to come forward and talk truthfully about what he knows or is he a trojan horse you know trying to come in to blow up the hearings and accuse people of, of bad faith as trump has allegedly told him to do so um we'll see but but to answer your first question a second time that won't happen in a live setting it will only happen in a recorded session and then the committee will decide what if anything that he has to say will be aired in public and, and john what do you you think at any point in time that we'll be looking at a testimony worth a damn to listen to or is it going to be uh bannon ranting and raving for eight hours and then them just throwing us up 15 second sound bites i think the more accurate way to describe where this is right now is bannon has agreed to talk to the committee about testifying and Zoe Lofgren, uh, one of the panel members, Democrat from California, was on uh, one of the Sunday shows this morning, and she said it'll definitely be a deposition behind closed doors. And part of the reason for that is, you know, and this is not a surprise, uh, they have, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of questions for Mr. Bannon. So they want to get all those in, as she said, and they can't do that. You know, they're trying to do these hearing public hearings in, in two-hour bites. And they have, I mean, they had eight hours of questions. There were breaks, of course, but eight hours of questions for Cipollone uh, on Friday. They may have eight hours, 10 hours of questions for Mr. Bannon. 
Um, you can't do that in a public hearing anyway, but uh, Lofgren said it'll definitely be behind closed doors. I don't think it's any coincidence that Bannon is saying he's willing to do this after uh, Trump and others have criticized the committee, saying there's no cross-examination of these witnesses, that it's it's very partisan and very one-sided. And here comes Steve Bannon, <laughs> uh, you know, who said he loved Trump and wanted to work for him and be his uh, chief strategist, campaign manager, and then go work in the White House in the kind of the same capacity because Trump was a political street fighter. Bannon sees himself the same way. He, of course, walks around in, in a camouflage jacket. So he sees himself as a fighter, and he wants to go fight for the man who, after all they've been through and, and all the back and forth, is still the boss. There, there's a frightening thought. Uh, so <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think we'll see Tuesday in the, in the coming hearing? Well, I, I think what they'll try to do is start to, as, as Lofgren and other panel members who were on the shows this morning said, they're going to start trying to connect the dots. And this is something, Brian, you've talked about on this show. Yeah. Um, try to connect the dots between some of these far-right groups, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. We know they their leaders met um, the night before the riot. They met on January 5th. So they're going to start trying to connect these dots between those groups, other planners of, of the violence that day. Then you get the dots connect to the route to the uh, Stop the Steal rally planners, some of the same people, by the way. And then yes. further connecting the dots then, as they said this morning, White House officials who were involved in all of this. So these dots are starting to, as we've talked about before, the three of us, these dots, I think Tuesday will will continue to get closer and closer to Donald Trump himself. And that's the dot I want you to connect, Michael. There have been there's been criticism that perhaps the uh, the committee has gotten ahead of the Department of Justice, and that it's actually in some I've read articles that it may indeed hamper prosecution of any of these people. Your thoughts? Do you think that's that's true, or do you think that it's independent and and doesn't matter as far as prosecution goes? Well, as to the last question, I think it is independent and I don't think it will have an impact on the DOJ's ability to prosecute if they decide to prosecute. There is oftentimes congressional hearings that go forward, Watergate as an example, and that didn't in, ham in any way hamper the prosecutions of the same people that were appearing on the Hill. There are problems sometimes, we saw that in Iran-Contra, where they immunized Oliver North uh, to testify before Congress, and that impeded, actually prevented North's prosecution. His conviction was overturned on appeal, I believe, because of the uh, immunity that he had received on the Hill. So there can be problems, but I think this committee is being pretty careful about not immunizing people to interfere, so as not to interfere with the DOJ uh, prosecutions. So I think that whether or not the DOJ is behind or not of the actions by the committee is unknowable because we don't know how far right. the DOJ has come in their investigations. So I don't think that we can know the answer to that. Plus, of course, the Hill, the committee, is looking at this from a political perspective and the DOJ is looking at it from a strictly legal perspective. And so, for example, if you're Merrick Garland, the attorney general, and there are 10 hours of testimony by Cassidy Hutchinson in closed door sessions, and you've heard, you know, an hour and a half of it, no prosecutor, uh, you know, no experienced prosecutor would go forward with a prosecution based on the hour and a half 
of um, clips from her without hearing the full testimony that she gave, because we don't know if there's anything that's exonerating or contradictory. So there's a lot of stuff that DOJ is going to have to process now because of all of this testimony that they really have to listen to um, before they can make a decision about whether to bring a prosecution. What do you think is the most important thing we'll, we should hear in Tuesday's hearing about the Oath Keepers and or promise and the, the whole nine yards? Uh, start with you, Michael. What do you think is the most important thing we could find out Tuesday? That there was a connection between the White House and them as a pre-planning matter, that the White House knew of, participated in, acquiesced to the activities that we saw on January 6th. Remember, the committee set out in day one a seven-part conspiracy that included the big lie, that included replacing Attorney General Rosen, that included the Vice President Pence pressure campaign and the state legislators pressure campaign. The two parts of that seven-part committee that we haven't really heard a lot of yet is Number six on their list is President Trump summoned and assembled a violent mob in Washington and directed them to march on the Capitol. That's a pretty bold statement. And we don't have, I don't think, from a prosecutorial standpoint, sufficient evidence to bring a charge based on that assertion. And the seventh part is, as the violence was underway, President Trump ignored multiple pleas for assistance and failed to take immediate action to stop the violence and instruct his supporters to leave the Capitol. So again, we've heard bits of that, but again, from a prosecutorial standpoint, we have not enough direct evidence of that. So I'm thinking that the next two hearings will focus on those two aspects of the seven-part conspiracy. What do you think, John? What, what, what would you think is the most important thing that we'll hear Tuesday or that we should hear? That linkage or something else? I think it's that linkage. I'm I'm channeling former uh, MRN radio uh, play-by-play guy for NASCAR, Barney Hall. The 1992 <laughs> Winston All-Star race, Dale Earnhardt was leading. Uh, you know, they had, I think, eight laps to go or something, and, and they were last caution lap. And he said, if they've got anything for Earnhardt, they better get with it. I'm starting to hear that if they've got this linkage to Trump, they better get with building that case out in public um, because – that, you know, even this morning, that that's what they say publicly when, when they're on television or interviewed uh, by my colleagues at CQ Roll Call in the hallways. Um, you know, they they don't say it clearly that it's there, but they certainly insinuate it. And I think if they're going to make to connect that dot to Trump or maybe more likely to Mark Meadows, we heard from Miss Hutchinson. Right. Who presumably was involved in the managing of Mark Meadows, schedule as chief of staff. Um and he initially wanted to go to the Willard Hotel, was, was later talked out of it. Um, well, we, we, I think, I believe she said he called in or, or it was somehow involved in, in a meeting at the, that, that others at the Willard were in. So if we're <laughs> going to connect this dot, it's time to connect it because they're out of here in August. They might come right. back and do a hearing. They've got to start running for re-election. The ones who are, who are actually running, Kinzinger, of course, uh, isn't running for re-election, but the legislative calendar at some point becomes their enemy. And and we've got three intense weeks on the Hill, a lot to do, including these some of these hearings. Um, but I think 
you know, there does come some fatigue. We don't have long attention spans. I'm anymore. fatigued. <laughs> well, we're all fatigued. I'm fatigued. I've been fatigued for five years. I don't know about you, but Jesus Christ. I, I think it's, well, it's been seven, but who's counting? Um, um, if they're going to connect these dots, I think before the House gavels out for August recess, they they have to have this case made. And, and clearly, if they yeah. have it, if they have it. Uh, I'll say I just want to know what was what was he looking at on his cell phone? And, uh, and secondly, right. most importantly, I think, you know, we've talked about it before. But, you know, the thing with Jeffrey Clark being yanked out of his house in his undies and uh, his PJs, I, I just think that that doesn't bode well for him and Giuliani and Meadows going forward. And I think they'll try to use those three. I Like you, I want to see the linkage this week. I want to see how they're going to connect the dots to Trump. But more importantly, I want to see what else they have on those three, because those three could have information on Trump that we haven't heard or seen yet, I, I, I would think. And getting one of those people indicted and getting the flip. And, and my bet would be on Clark to, to flip first. Uh, <laughs> soft, pasty face, doughboy does not do well in federal prison. Details at 11. I, I think that that's probably where uh, I'd like to see it go this week. Uh, we're going to take a short break at this point, and when we come back, we've got a lot more to talk about, so stick around. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Caraman. With us again from CQ Roll Call is John Bennett and our favorite former federal prosecutor, and CNN point man, <laughs> Michael Zeldin. Michael, you had a point you wanted to make uh, prior to the break about the last point that I made. So go ahead. So the thing that I wanted to say, Brian, was that remember that there are possible prosecutions that are sort of related in an overall sense, but are separate from a prosecutor's standpoint. So, for example, you could bring a prosecution, theoretically, against Giuliani, Eastman, um, and, and others um, for election fraud that doesn't implicate seditious conspiracy or, 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 or general con- conspiracy right. that includes Trump. So you could have multiple types of prosecutions against others that are you know, sort of in the Trump inner circle that don't necessarily need Trump as a co-defendant. I know I understand that people would like to see, many people would like to see Trump as a co-defendant. Many people would not like to see him as a co-defendant. But from a prosecutor's standpoint, you don't need him as a co-defendant if you believe that Julia, like, for example, there was just recent uh, subpoenas in the Fulton County, Atlanta um, case, and they subpoenaed Lindsey Graham and, and Eastman and Giuliani. They didn't subpoena Trump. So right. you could have a prosecution there against those people and they could leave Trump out of it because they, they can say, well, his uh, involvement, while relevant, is not in, an indictable 
at an indictable level. So you kind of like what that. they did with Michael Cohen. He was, you know, an uh, unindicted co-conspirator, you know, right. person so, number one. <laughs> right. So you don't need one massive RICO-styled, continuing criminal enterprise-styled prosecution. You can have lots of different pieces that involve lots of different actors, some of which could involve Trump as a co-conspirator, some of them as an unindicted co-conspirator, some of them not at all. As a well, that's... It will be interesting to see if uh, that begs the question, do all these people get prosecuted? And at the end of the day, Donald Trump walks away free again. It, you know, and anything is possible because there are lots of things that you have to take into account as a prosecutor when it is about the former president of the United States that you don't need to take account of when it's John Eastman or Rudy Giuliani or even Mark Meadows for that matter. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I, you know, God bless. So uh, <laughs> that brings me to a comment made, I won't say by who, on Sunday's show. Uh, uh, I, I won't say it was Trump, but uh, suggests that Americans can't handle a Trump prosecution. Do you think the, the United States is best to put Trump behind us without a prosecution or that it's better to prosecute him if he's prosecutable? Uh, John, you, you, your, your thoughts. You know, this is, this is, this is, <laughs> I'm putting it to you, baby. You really did. You really uh, put this cruise to me there. But you know, I go. I I see both sides of this one. Um, you know, if if that's if the problem with the press, we see both sides to everything. Sure, sure, sure. We um, if he if if he if it's proven to a criminal level that he was involved in the planning, or you know, if we find out that he called into this Willard meeting on the evening of January 5th or was um, encouraging violence before the 5th and the 6th and and it's prosecutable, you know, part of me says he should be held accountable just like Rudy Giuliani or Mark Meadows or, or John Eastman or, or whoever else might be, you know, might clear that, that criminal bar. Uh, the other part of me understands where that individual is coming from, uh, from the Sunday show this morning. Um, and we I won't mean, we won't mention names. Could you? I mean, could you imagine? Uh, could you imagine the, the anger uh, down south and and parts of the you know the southwest, the Mountain West, parts of the Midwest, where Trump is extremely popular? You saw the crowd last night in Alaska. That arena was, you know, Trump for once was right. The the arena was packed and overflowing uh, from all accounts. So there would be a lot of anger. It, it, would, it would further say, rip open the wounds that are already there. It would just really rip them open. But you know what? The other part of me, it keeps coming back. If, if you know, if you did the crime, you got to do the time. Right. Michael. So I sort of go back and forth like, like John does, but I believe that if there is evidence that he participated, when I say participated, meaning at a, criminally provable um, level. If he participated in the actions on January 6th, then he has to be prosecuted for that. You can't let a person, former president or otherwise, who actively participated in a conspiracy to obstruct the orderly transfer of power go unpunished. So for Great. me, that one is a pretty easy um, decision. With respect to some of the other types of cases, the Fulton County case or a federal case for interfering with an election to get me the 11,780 
votes type of thing or whether or not pressuring Vice President Pence could be shoehorned into some criminal charge. I feel a little bit less sure that that is a sensible thing to do. I go back and forth in my own mind, you know, in, in my sort of schizophrenic way, <laughs> by looking at um, Gerald Ford and Richard Nixon. And at the time of that pardon, I was pretty sure that that was the wrong thing to have done because Nixon's criminality was pretty blatant. But as time passed, I sort of backed away from that, thinking that maybe that was the best thing to have done. However, what causes this schizophrenia is that Richard Nixon at that point was done. He had run and won for the presidency twice. His career in politics was over and pardoning him and letting him go, you know, sort of quietly into the good night was sensible. Here is a fellow in Trump who is still a viable, constitutionally viable political candidate who is not going silently into the, into that. No. And, and therefore maybe, <laughs> well, but maybe therefore the, the, the Ford um, calculus in the pardon, if you will, um, doesn't apply as, as well here. That meaning no one is pardoning him, but decision not to prosecute is sort of a pardon in a sense. So, I, I, you know, if, if Trump were receding into the woodwork, I would say let him recede and let's, let's move on. But the fact that he is so active and, and so, you know, sort of in our face about his innocence, I, I think more of me thinks, well, that has to stop. Well, yes, like maybe it. maybe the maybe the people in that support him in certain parts of the country will be upset about that. But, you know, from a prosecutor standpoint, you can't you can't make that decision when when prosecuting when we were prosecuting cases uh, for federal civil rights violations. Many people in the South, white supremacists in the South, particularly, were very upset about these prosecutions. But we weren't going to say, oh, well. We can't prosecute the murder of Medgar Edwards or something like that because white people in the South will be upset about that. That couldn't be part of our calculation. So I think some of it is true here, too. The fact that some people may be upset about it is, well, too bad. I agree with that. And, and personally, I, I mean, I don't care if they're upset. There's probably many more people that would be upset if he wasn't uh, prosecuted. But more to the point, I guess, you know, everyone says we have to put this behind us and heal. I don't think you can heal from the January 6th seditious act unless those who were guilty of it are, are made to pay for it. And that includes if Donald Trump was, was part of that calculus. I agree. I think he's got to, I think, you ha I don't, I think that's a no brainer. Um, but I also, I'm curious when I look at this as just as, as a reporter, we get accused of, what about ism and equal timeism and trying to both sides ism. And I, I don't think that I think that the public misunderstands our reporting for a stance that we take and that for some reason we're taking a stance, you know, well, you know, give Trump his due. I, I just think it's a matter of trying to present facts. But I think people misinterpret that sometimes as, you know, oh, we're supporting, you know, Donald Trump and not having him brought to trial. But that's just me. Hell, I, I, I you know, I, I think we do a lot of things wrong, but I think in uh, talking about the prosecution of Donald Trump, I think we've tried very hard to get that right. Um, that, you know, 
There, there's a couple other things I wanted to toss out to talk about today before we talk a little bit more about the wonderful meeting of the press. And, and of course, Michael, I know you want to talk about the Yankees. We'll get there. <laughs> but, um, Joe Biden has taken a controversial, though you're saying, a controversial trip to Saudi Arabia this week. And it comes uh, after um, a lot of, well, uh, how do I put it? A, a lot of consternation about our relationship with Saudi Arabia, particularly when it comes to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the fact that Trump didn't hold uh, the Saudi Arabian regime responsible for it and now neither has uh, Joe Biden. And then others saying it's just a, uh, and every pun intended, crude diplomacy it all has to do with oil uh michael do you think that there is any there, there have often been questions about whether or not we could prosecute those who were responsible for jamal khashoggi's death and i don't think that that's possible at all we're talking about somebody outside of the united states is there in your mind any way a case could be made for that well i haven't studied the jurisdictional question so i don't know whether or not a murder outside of the U.S. in that location under the circumstances in which it occurred would give a U.S. court jurisdiction over it. Uh, so I can't say with certainty, Brian, that the U.S. courts could entertain a case like that. Um, if they could, if there is jurisdiction over it, then I think we should um, open up an investigation as to um, the merits of that prosecution. And John, do you think it's wise to take this trip at this point in time, or is uh, Biden better uh, spending his time elsewhere? Well, I've come to the conclusion that that he has no choice uh, but to do this and and be in the same room with MBS and um, and and go through with this because the world's a complicated place. Um, you know, Biden said what he what he did, and and maybe it helped him get reelected. Maybe it didn't. I don't know how many one issue Saudi Arabia policy voters we have out there. I'm sure there are a few <laughs> probably here in town. Yeah. Um, but look, the only issue I care about is Saudi Arabia. The hell with everything else. <laughs> there might be five policy analysts, but, um, but, but no, this isn't just about oil. You're not the no U.S. leader, Donald Trump, Richard Nixon, Barack Obama, George W. Bush or um, or Joe Biden. You can't counter Iranian behavior bad behavior in the region and elsewhere without the Saudis. You need their help. That's the bottom line. And, oh, by the way, they can maybe in help increase oil production from the OPEC. They're the most powerful country in OPEC. So, you know, this just shows how the presidency and the campaign trail are two completely different things. The world's a different place than when candidate Biden said those things. Um, and it's just the bottom line is there's some things here that he needs to get done and he needs the Saudis to do it. So you got to take the hit and you have to go. You think uh, well, the, the question, it begs the question of me, though. Is Biden, has he, and, and your column spoke to it this week about AOC, and I spoke to it a little bit as well. Do you think that Biden's uh, White House is, is messaging itself and putting itself in the best position it can? No. We could do a messaging, a Biden White House messaging podcast every week. Uh, let me first, <laughs> let me, we, we've held other members of the press accountable here. Let me hold myself accountable. Um, I wrote in my column and then tweeted my column out and, and said that Biden gave um, a staid speech 
about abortion rights on Friday. And then I've seen other people report it and describe it differently. Now, now I'm correct that the way the president delivered that speech Friday um, was very flat. It's just like when your favorite team, big game, game seven, here we go, we're going to the next round, and then they don't show up and they lose by 20 points at home. You know, Biden doesn't, he didn't deliver the speech with the vigor. I went back and looked at the words right. and, and, and it was a tough speech. And he did, he did use the tougher rhetoric that AOC and others on the far left and kind of the activist left want him to use, but he didn't deliver it the way they want. I don't think the Roosevelt Room was the right venue. I think the Rose Garden, let's get the president outside. Let's get some flags going. Let's, let's loosen him up and just let him go. Let Joe be Joe. No, I, I don't know after that's I don't know after that speech if we've we've pinned a lot of it on the staff. And there's a lot of evidence. I mean, Kate Bedingfeld yeah. is leaving as communications director. Jen Psaki's already gone. Other people are fleeing to agency jobs from the press shop. So And Friday it's a small was, press shop too. It's not as large right. as Trump's. It's right. small. So, so Friday I, I came to the conclusion, and then when I went back and looked at the text of the speech. I don't know if that was the staff or is that the president himself? And I don't, you know, not an ageist here, but as I was listening Friday and waiting for him to have a little umph in his voice, I just thought to myself, he's just he's just an old guy. He's just a 79 year old man. And I don't think he's always going to get there vigor wise and energy wise. And oh, by the way, that's a problem in a presidential campaign, uh, which, you know, the vice president said on CBS this morning again that Biden intends to run. And I just, I, there's just a lack of vigor, a lack of umph, and and it, it's a problem. Donald Trump, you know, he he lives a different life. He doesn't have the 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 pressures of the presidency anymore. But he, but had he has two the Adderall, <laughs> right? And he had two rallies Friday and Saturday night, and he had plenty of umph and vigor. So, you know, this is just something about Biden and his White House. The messages they don't resonate; they just don't break through. Uh, fair enough. Michael, I, from, sitting from the outside, you know, the one thing I've always wanted to ask you is when you take a look at a president and you see the messaging that they do, do you ever just want to shake your fist at the camera and go, hey, you don't get it? Well, you know, being a TV president is hard. I mean, there are a lot of presidents who delivered good content in a, in a less than, you know, TV friendly way. Truman while early, you know, in the radio and TV era was not a very um, well-spoken president, but he did some pretty remarkable things. And Nixon, you know, you can leave Watergate aside, did some pretty remarkable things as president. And he was not a very good TV messenger. So sometimes content can overcome um, the medium, but more and more, you've got to be telegenic and enthusiastic and that's not Biden's strength. No. And, you know, one of the things that I remember was uh, watching the and, and <laughs> I think, John, you and I talked about it, <coughs> watching Trump pitching the fact that, ah, who cares if global warming? It just means we're going to have, you know, uh, more coastline. So sit back, relax and enjoy it. The man can dismiss anything with a telegen, tel telegenic smile. Facts be damned. <laughs> logic be damned. <laughs> reality be damned. That seems to be his his place in history. Uh, the the snake oil salesman who shows up on the frontier and sells you a cure for everything. Yeah, I believe what he said last night. Uh, his Alaska rally is uh, 
you know, rising sea levels, don't worry about it. We'll have more beachfront property. And, <laughs> and you know, everyone loves beachfront property. Now, that, 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 misses, that misses the fact that the existing beachfront property would be wiped out. Yeah, that's right. But 30 feet guess, underwater. <laughs> I guess we'll deal with that. Uh, we'll deal with that down the road. Well, I, and you know, I, well, I find that funny because it, I think Brian, the point is that we we need more beach pro we need more beachfront property, ocean beach front property in Kansas. We don't have enough. <laughs> well, you we're gonna get it. <laughs> I guess you could build a few more uh, Trump. Uh, Trump golf resorts. That's right. Beachfront property. He, he wants to move Mar-a-Lago to Kansas, where there'd be plenty of beachfront property. <laughs> Which brings me to the other thing that was in the Huff Post uh, that he's asking the Wisconsin electors to flip for him. Uh, have you? you I, I sent you guys a link to that. It's frightening to me that Donald Trump is still trying to push this agenda because it, it seems to cement the fact going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, that he's still involved. He can't admit that he lost, and he's still involved in trying to change the results. John? Will it ever end? <laughs> I, I, I don't. It, it, you know, the, the joke among the White House press corps when Trump was still in office um, was... Which it, one? <laughs> well, one of them. Sorry, good, good catch. Um, <laughs> you know, we would always say it, it, it will always be 2016. Well, that's been replaced, and at least... For now, it, it's always going to be 2020 when he's behind a live mic because, you know, these grievances, he'll never drop them. And um, I, someone tweeted this morning that, you know, Trump continues to stand behind microphones and give uh, prosecutors in Georgia and elsewhere more evidence to work with. And he may have done that uh, the last few days. And, and on his social media account, he, he had tweeted uh, something about was the his request that Wisconsin hand him their 2020 electoral votes. So I expect this will just go on and on and on until he um, eventually leaves politics. Or if he, if, if yeah, he eventually if he ever does. Michael, there's no legal way to do this, right? This is, this is basically garbage, right? He can't, the Wisconsin electors can't be flipped. It's over. It's done. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's correct. And, and I, I can say um, from practical life experience that OCD is a pernicious disease. <laughs> that, that I think is what we have here. We've got, you know, uh, uh, you know, not, I'm not saying it from a psychiatric standpoint, I say it more from personal experience, obsessive compulsive um, behavioral disorders are, are difficult to, to, to deal with. And I think in, in some measure, uh, I say it with an amount of sympathy for him in some measure, I think that's what we have going on here. He is obsessive about this. He cannot control that. And I, I expect that it torments him some uh, too. We don't see the private angst that I think probably a person who suffers from this um, is feeling. We just see the outward manifestation of it. But to answer your question in a legal sense, no, I don't think you can do anything about the Wisconsin electors that's that's done and 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 over but from a groundhog day sort of um analysis he he is seeing the same thing over and over and he's doing it through the lens of i think someone who's suffering from ocd before we go to our last break um i guess sum it up i, I 
how do you both think? Do you both think that uh, we've turned a corner or that we're still staring into the abyss as far as our democracy goes? I mean, there are people worried about the 2022 midterms. There are people worried about 2024. Uh, but is is Trump a thing of the past or is he still is the threat to our democracy still real? Mike, Michael, what do you think? Well, I think the this decade is going to be a difficult decade. I don't think that we're going to put this behind us anytime soon, whether Trump runs for re-election, doesn't run for re-election, runs and is, is not elected, run and is elected. I think that we're in for a very tough time. And I think that we're not going to get out of it until you know the Gen Xers, the Gen Zs, and all of them really flex their muscle and change the, the culture. Uh, I'm hopeful that they will. There are some signs of it in the polling from the last two elections. They're, they're the future, and they're an active um, cohort of people. But, it, uh, but I think they're a little bit away still from being able to set the, the, the national dialogue. And so I'm optimistic longer term and um, quite concerned shorter term. John? Yeah, I think that's right. I think this is going to be a, a diff another difficult stretch. We've been through several. I don't see it getting any easier. Back to uh, one of our previous uh, topics today, I don't see any signs of, of healing, and uh, the divisions only get deeper and wider. And remember that even, even as polls do show that Trump has lost some influence um, within the party. But, but two quick things. Uh, number one, even, even the less... Trumpy candidates that have won primaries this year and and a lot of incumbents, they might not say Donald Trump's name a lot, but they're still pushing Trumpism. So Trumpism yeah. is still really strong, even if the former president's lost some sway. And 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 the other thing is he's still the front runner in 2024. There are signs that DeSantis has closed some ground, um, but but Trump's still the only show in town on, on that side of things. And as long as as long as Trumpism is still as strong as it is, um, you know, I, I just don't see things getting any better. Now, we didn't see in these primaries a lot of talk of, of rigged elections. And, and when the Trumpy candidates lost, you know, they didn't say, you know, this primary was stolen from me. Most of them uh, bowed out, you know, bowed out yeah. gracefully. So, you know, maybe that's a little a uh, little solace for us all. We'll see what happens with these general elections in November. Uh, if Democrats, especially statewide races, you know, there aren't, as our uh, uh, campaigns editor, Herb Jackson, uh, noted uh, to some of us recently uh, in our newsroom, uh, there aren't a lot of really competitive House races because of gerrymandering and, and the way they draw the maps now. But some of these Senate races and state level races, let's see what what the Republican candidates do if they lose. And, you know, if they lose relatively closely, do they run the Trump playbook of saying this was stolen or is it, you know, a more traditional bowing out, you know, somewhat gracefully? I, I think we can't. I, I don't want to look past 2022. I, I, I think if uh, if the Republicans capture the House and the Senate in 2022, things could turn dramatically worse. Uh, I think the division will be there, uh, but I think it, it has been there for a while. And what Trump did was peel away the thin veneer of civility and many of the racist misogynists uh in the south you know you know that that uh, that culture john so do i having been raised in it and so i 
I think all he did was give him a, a pulpit from which to shout. Um, when we come back, we're going to take our uh, another short break. And when we come back, we'll have much more. So stick around. It's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. Again, that's at JATQ Podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Caraman. Once again with us is John Bennett from CQ Roll Call and Michael Zeldin, our favorite former prosecutor and CNN point man. I love saying that. I, you know, I, just, I don't know why. Well, but, I uh, should correct you that I am. I know, I know. Formally <laughs> associated with CNN. I appear, yeah. but I'm not, I'm not their point not man. Anymore. Any. <laughs> uh, I guess what we want to talk about at the end of the day um, it, it, and to wrap this up, because we do this every Sunday, is is take a look at how the press covered this week's news events. I mean, we've discussed the major news events. Um, and I, I guess, you know, I wrote a column critical of, of uh, the Biden uh, press outreach. Um, particularly, I, I found it almost abhorrent that they've turned the South Court Auditorium into a Hollywood soundstage. I mean, that used to be a venue that 200 people could get into. And now maybe 20 do, and we're ushered in and ushered out rather quickly. And we haven't really made much of that. And the Biden administration, while complaining that people don't hear what they have to say, put far fewer people out in front of the cameras than the Trump people used to, and far less frequently. So uh, from both of you, that's my take on it. But from both of you, where do you think the press uh, stood this week? Do you think we did a decent enough job reporting the news, or what will we need to improve it? Michael, I'll start with you. Well, so I watch only, you know, select aspects of the news and I consider um, sports the news. So that takes a lot of my... my, And you're a smart man for doing it. (laughs) That takes a lot of my viewing time. But uh, in respect to the areas that I watch, the January 6th, the run-up to the hearing and the aftermath of the hearing, I think they're trying to do a pretty straight up job, the press is in covering this. They're telling us essentially what to expect. They air it in full so we can see um, what's going on. And they try, I think, to give a straight up analysis of what we saw. And I think they maybe learned a little bit of a lesson from the Mueller investigation, which is they're less out in front of their skis predicting, you know, sort of, the downfall of anyone in particular. Um, And I think that's good because I felt during Mueller, for example, you'd hear many, many analysts, political and legal alike, saying that the shoe was about to drop, that prosecutions were imminent, that retirement, resignation, indictment was, you know, just a moment away. And all of it was, you know, wishful or fanciful, uh, thinking. Uh, I don't see that as much. I think that's helpful. We do have enough We do have enough legal analysts out there, though, who are saying when anything happens, this is what, maybe I'll put it in this way. When anything happens, what used to happen in the Mueller case, and less so now, is they'd say, 
you legal analysts, what do you think about this? And they say, huge, this is huge, you know? And I think to myself, this is not huge. This is not even important. This is just, you know, one little, you know, sort of sideshow. And I think that they've learned a bit from that. So I think good for them. John, what do you think? How are we doing? How's the press doing? Well, I, I think we need just less outrage in general um, about, and, 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 you know, especially our, our, some of our, our cable news colleagues, um, you know, to come on and, and be shocked about everything and to still be shocked when, when Trump says or, or posts on his social media platform, you know, things that we've heard, the kinds of things that we've heard for seven years, you know, it just stop being so shocked that this guy can say and, and, you know, put out there some of the things that he ah, does. Shocked! And, you know, I, I think some of the things that, that, that I've read that are missing, uh, missing, a, missing context, or, you know, I think sometimes we're trying um, to our credit, but also sometimes to our detriment to write things too straight when we could get a little bit of analysis in there or, or, you know, make that one more phone call and get someone like Michael to comment for our story. Um, you know, I, I think we, we, we really need to hit the context button a little harder. Uh, but, but like I said, sometimes, you know, I know there's, there's, there's a push to, okay, let's just write this straight for X, Y, Z reasons. But, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I think sometimes we can serve readers a little better by, um, by pushing a little harder to get that analysis and that, that context, maybe not in the first take, but at least in the second take of the story. And certainly not, you know, on page one of a major publication. I, I just think we can do a better job there. I think the one place where we could have done a better job, I was sitting in the briefing room earlier this week and um, <laughs> uh, right after the congressional, you know, they got a bipartisan, uh, you know, gun legislation passed and a member of the press corps said, now that uh, everything has gone on with guns, are we going to get a bipartisan, you know, bill passed? And I, I turned and looked at like, you know, did you did you miss it? Did you not? And uh, Corrine, uh press secretary, Corrine Jean Pierre, looked at him and had the same look in her face. And uh, to her uh, credit, she was very professional in her answer. But I think we just need to be better. I think in covering, it's very hard, but I think we have to be better prepared for covering these very complex issues. And sometimes we're not. Um, so that's that. I'll leave it at, at that. And then, uh, Michael, okay, Yankees, baby. What's up with the Yankees? Well, they're on a record pace to win more baseball games than any other team in modern history, although they lost a heartbreaking game on Saturday night to the Red Sox, giving up three runs in the 10th inning after they had scored two in the top of the 10th. But, you know, if you like baseball, this is a, a, a wonderful team to, to watch because of this record pace that they're playing on as a team. And then this Aaron Judge has having hit his 30th home run the other day on pace to break the non-steroid baseball <laughs> home run record. So – you can be a Yankee hater or a Yankee fan, but I like when you have these milestone sort of things going on and to, to, to be able to, to watch it uh, play out. So well, I have a buddy of mine who's a big Royals fan 
who is keeping track of their record pace at losing. (laughs) And that they may set a record for the numbers of games lost in a season, beating the early 1960s New York Mets record to pieces. So yeah, and 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 actually, they have a terrific player in this kid, Benedendi, um, who plays outfield for the Royals. And the talk is that before the trade deadline, the Yankees are going to pick him up. Uh oh, uh oh. <laughs> so John, you 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 down with that, brother? You're from the South, man. I know you're not. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I uh, I have no real animus to uh, to the Yankees uh, organization. My household is partially a Yankees fandom uh, household. Uh, I'll just, uh, you know, as a, as a Nationals fan, you know, we, we got our, our trophy a few years ago. I'll just give a shout-out to the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, they weren't supposed to be much of anything this year. There are a few oh, games below 500, but uh, they're playing, you know, at least, at least entertaining baseball. I don't think anyone expects this to last uh, <laughs> through, through October, but, but they're, they're, they're kind of fun to watch right now. Yeah, absolutely. They they've won seven straight games. They're two games below 500, and their bullpen is spectacular. And yeah. so, you know, if they can only get Jim Palmer and and Quayar out of retirement, you know, <laughs> right? Don't forget Cal. Let's get Cal back at the hot corner, and we're going all the way. I'll take Brooks and Brooks and Cal and and uh, you know and and, and Eddie uh, uh, Murphy. So. Yeah. Well, I, I think you mentioned a team that I, I don't think is going anywhere, and that's the Nationals. And they're not playing very good baseball either. And I think they got rid of all their players that, you know. Yeah, I was about to say, they are going to sell, sell, sell at the deadline. Yeah, that's they're they're playing like Donald Trump. They're, <laughs> they're selling it all. <laughs> well, listen, guys, I, I appreciate you being with us once again. The name of the show is uh, Just Ask the Questions. Our Sunday edition is Just Ask the Press, where we talk about the the uh, the highlights of the week and, of course, how we did in the press and covering it. I'm your host, Brian Kerman for Michael Zeldin and uh, John Bennett. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast.